The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Well, as we've gotten used to, California's farm news is again dominated this week by water stories. For instance, who's going to pay for the repairs of Oroville Dam's spillways? It may not be the federal government. The Santa Clara Water District finally took a vote on financing the Delta Tunnels project. We have the results. Here in California, we don't really know how much rain we're going to get each winter, but climatologists seem certain of one change in our weather. When it does rain, it's going to rain a lot and quickly. The deluge of atmospheric rivers may become more commonplace in our future. There is a bright side, though. Those large storms may be a source for more groundwater banking for the farms and cities of California. We talk with a researcher on this promising development. Oh, don't worry, we have plenty of stories that involve food, trade agreements, and soil as well, including the latest crop reports. It's all coming up on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. It was probably inevitable, a head-on collision between the problems at Oroville Dam and the California Water Fix Project, also known as Governor Brown's Delta Tunnels. The issue is who's going to pay for the repairs for the spillway failures at Oroville Dam in 2017. CBS 13 News is reporting that federal emergency management agency officials have told Davis-based Congressman John Garamendi that the federal government is not responsible for 75% of the repair costs. That's about $750 million because they don't pay for disasters that are the result of poor maintenance or no maintenance at all. Garamendi told CBS 13 News that FEMA was very clear about their financial responsibilities in this matter. We uh, do not pay for disasters that are caused by a lack of maintenance. Garamendi went on to say that the state's Department of Water Resources is one of the sources for blame, spending their money instead on promoting the Delta Tunnels. They spent nearly $400 million pushing the twin tunnels. All of the um, early studies, the engineering, as well as all the public relations, mm -hmm. and didn't spend a nickel on maintaining the spillway. So if the feds won't pay for the Oroville Dam spillway repairs, who should pay? Garamendi says it should be the vested interest in the Delta Tunnels project, and that includes Southern California's massive Metropolitan Water District. Already, Southern California says they're willing to spend something like uh, $10 billion, maybe $12 billion, on the uh, boondoggle tunnels, the two twin tunnels mm -hmm. that could destroy the Delta. Uh, so my point is, folks, you screwed up. The preliminary forensic study by FEMA indicates regular thorough maintenance of the spillways by the state did not occur at Oroville Dam, thus freeing the federal government from any financial responsibility to foot the majority of what could turn out to be a billion dollar price tag. No final decision has been rendered yet. We now have the complete ag trade figures for the first half of this fiscal year, taking us from October through March. March, the last month of the pre- trade dispute world. The pre-trade dispute world. And so Agriculture Department analyst Bryce Cook told us that we exported $12.9 billion worth of U.S. ag products during March. The best March export total since 2014. And for the first half of fiscal 2018. Exports are down 3% in 2018 compared to 2017. 
This year, it's $74.8 billion. Still, though, a pretty strong 2018. But what's going to happen in the second half of 2018 in the middle of the trade dispute world with tariffs, threats of tariffs, NAFTA trade talks, and who knows what else? The USDA will issue its new trade forecast May 31st, and Bryce Cook says it's going to be interesting trying to come up with a forecast. There's just a lot of uncertainty right now. And have you ever seen anything like this before? No. No, I haven't. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You might recall during last week's KSTE Farm Hour, we talked about how the Santa Clara Valley Water District had delayed a vote on whether to commit up to $650 million to help pay for the Delta Tunnels project. Well, they took a vote earlier this week, and in a significant boost for Governor Brown's $17 billion plan to build those two massive tunnels under the Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley Delta, Silicon Valley's largest agency endorsed the project. By a 4-3 to three vote, the Santa Clara Valley Water District reversed a vote it took last October to oppose the two-tunnel project. According to the San Jose Mercury News, the vote came after a four-hour meeting in a full chamber. Unions and Silicon Valley's largest business groups recommended a yes vote, while environmental groups and the majority of speakers urged a no vote. They argued the project would harm wildlife and water quality in the Delta and San Francisco Bay, while also putting ratepayers of Santa Clara Valley at risk for cost overruns similar to those that occurred on the Bay Bridge and high-speed rail projects. Here's this week's California crop report. Corn was planted as weather and soil conditions permitted in Tulare County. Ground prep continues for spring forage and row crops. Alfalfa fields continue to mature and are being harvested. Winter wheat and oats were cut, dried, and baled. Rice planting in the Sacramento Valley is ongoing. Vineyards continue to leaf out and progress into the early stages of flowering. Leaf removal was ongoing in some vineyards. Stone fruit orchards continue to leaf out as the bloom draws to a close. Immature fruit on early stone fruit varieties are being thinned. New orchards are being planted. Cherries are sizing well. Some early varieties are being harvested. Pomegranates, persimmons, olives, and kiwis were blooming. Kiwi pollen was being collected to be used to pollinate other blocks. The harvest of late variety navel oranges continues with some grading issues. Valencia oranges were harvested. Seedless mandarin groves remain netted for the bloom. Grapefruit harvest was wrapping up. Some citrus trees are being planted. The walnut and pistachio bloom is ongoing. Almonds are developing well. Almond and walnuts were irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control is ongoing. Broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, and lettuce continue to progress well in Monterey. Strawberry plantings progress well in Tulare. Mature fruit is being picked. Greenhouse vegetables continue to be harvested. Fields are being prepped for summer vegetables in the Sacramento area. Rangeland and non-irrigated pastures were drying out in locations with south or west-facing slopes. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees were active in citrus and olive groves. <laughs> Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. California's climate is characterized by the largest precipitation and streamflow variability observed within the lower 48 United States. And this is combined with chronic groundwater overdraft, and that creates the need to identify additional surface water sources available for groundwater recharge using methods such as agricultural groundwater banking, 
aquifer storage and recovery, as well as spreading basins. High magnitude stream flows, that is flows above the 90th percentile that exceed environmental flow requirements and current surface water allocations under California water rights, could be a viable source of surface water for groundwater banking. And according to one recent report, it's estimated to be about 2.6 million acre feet per year. It's a very interesting report. The co-author is Tiffany Kosis. She's in the hydrologic science department at UC Davis. And along with her co-author, Helen Dalke, they've been breaking some ground as far as what we can do with the excess water in order to replenish the groundwater here in California. And spurring this along is California Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014, which is eventually going to require 250 groundwater basins in California to halt the overdraft in their aquifers. Is this part of the answer? Let's find out. We're talking with Tiffany Kosas. And Tiffany, tell us a little bit about uh, this report. Now, you came up with 2.6 million acre feet per year of possibly available water. Now, Department of Water Resources uh, released a report, and it was, they said there was about half of that available. Why is there such a big variance in that figure? I'd say that the first sort of large discrepancy between our report and the report by DWR is the 2.6 million acre feet per year that we're reporting is two is 2.6 million acre feet in a year in which we actually receive high magnitude flows. So we don't receive high magnitude flows every year, which we I think most of us know here in California can be one year can be very dry and the next year can be very wet. And so what our goal was was to look at when we actually get these high magnitude flows, how much do we get? during that year. And I think, you know, part of the DWR report, part of their averaging process sort of averages, you know, it includes those zero values for years, which we just don't get anything. So I think that's part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is the difference between, the major difference between our report and the DWR report is that we are using historical data, you know, pulled from the USGS. All of this is real data. And DWR is actually looking at modeled data. So there is going to be some difference in there, especially that because our models have a difficult time actually capturing very high flows. Now, you mentioned uh, the term high magnitude stream flows. What exactly are those? So we consider high magnitude stream flows just, it's just a kind of umbrella term for us to refer to flows that are over the 90th percentile which is determined from the historical record from stations that have at least 50 years of data. So we look at what's the 90th percentile of flows over that period of time, and then we look at only flows that exceed that value. So that's what we consider to be a high magnitude flow. And we kind of pick that 90th percentile just as a way to say, you know, these are very, very high flows. These are, you know, possibly the you know, only water in California that's potentially unallocated, legally speaking. And this is likely to be such high flows that we've already met all the environmental and other in-stream flow requirements that may exist. So most of these high magnitude stream flows then would be excess water that is dumped on California in what used to be called a Pineapple Express, now called atmospheric rivers? Correct. That's sort of the environmental and climate conditions that would produce flows like these. But because of climate change, uh, I would think that in your models, you're, you're looking at more of these intense storms that are certain to happen. 
Yeah, so it seems like the current model projections suggest that we are getting more intense storm events during the wintertime, like you said. Unclear whether or not they're going to be more frequent, less frequent. Um, if they're less frequent, are they going to be more intense, that sort of thing. The models definitely look like they're suggesting there's going to be a change, which I would potentially agree with. Um, some future work that we are currently working on right now is actually a trend analysis on the data that we currently have to look at whether or not in the period of climate change that we've already experienced, have we are we seeing any changes in stream flow magnitude or duration um, and those sort of other metrics that we looked at in our publication. How much is groundwater overdraft right now in California and is the water that you've calculated to be available for replenishment equal to that or, or even comes close to what's being overdrafted? The current overdraft numbers are somewhere between like a half and three cubic kilometers per year in California. And I forget the conversion for that, you know, something like up to probably what, like two and a half million acre feet per year of groundwater overdraft. And the number that we found pretty much equals that. So it's, you know, in a year in which we do get high magnitude flows, there would potentially be enough to offset groundwater overdraft during that year. Well, then the problem comes, how do you get the water to those groundwater basins that need it the most? Now, your associate, Helen Dalka, has been doing research the last couple of winters, basically flooding almond orchards in the wintertime. But the problem is that that farmland has to be flat. It has to have a good percolation rate. And is that the area that needs the groundwater the most? Or is there going to have to be a whole new set of canals to move this water around? I think short term, um, making use of existing irrigation infrastructure and the canal system in California would allow us to use these flows as part of the solution to solving groundwater overdraft. I don't necessarily think that all of these flows could be utilized at the current time and situation in California. However, I don't really envision a future for California where we aren't investing in infrastructure and we aren't investing in, you know, more studies and more research and in general, more information about the best ways to utilize all of the surface water in California in order to improve our groundwater resources. You know, there is a lot of farmland in California that could actually take these flows, especially, you know, towards the south, but there's less water available there technically. And, you know, it's a political topic in California to suggest that we move water from the north to the south. And part of the solution to groundwater overdraft might be addressing that as a political management issue. Are there enough reservoirs in California to accomplish this task? Or is it just a, a matter of changing the way the current reservoirs are being managed? Yeah, I don't really think that to utilize these flows that we would need to actually put in more reservoirs. I think actually part of the beauty of using these flows is that this is stuff that's generally passed through the reservoir in the early winter to provide for flood storage later in the spring. You know, we get these really high snow melts, we're filling up the reservoirs, we're trying to avoid flooding. So we push these flows through early on in, in, the, in the winter and, you know, those are the kind of flows that we would like to make use of. And I think that, you know, with even further reoperation and efficiency in that aspect, 
you know, we could actually probably increase the amount of, of these high magnitude flows that we could use. The name of the report Tiffany Kosis and Helen Dalka authored is entitled Availability of High Magnitude Stream Flow for Groundwater Banking in the Central Valley, California. You can do an internet search for that phrase and read their report. And Tiffany Kosis of the Hydrologic Sciences Department at UC Davis, thanks for finding some more water for us. You're very welcome. We're always trying. Foot and mouth disease. It has not threatened livestock on the U.S. mainland since the late 1920s. And those connected to agriculture and our nation's food supply, such as USDA Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh, want to keep it this way. If and when we would have a diagnosis of foot and mouth disease in the U.S., we've lost our markets, and we have great trade impact from that. So strategies to prepare and prevent an FMD outbreak include potential vaccination of animals, and in that realm, the development of an FMD vaccine bank being advocated by stakeholders, including the Agriculture Department's chief veterinarian, Jack Sher. We have to stockpile vaccine storage in order to be prepared, and that's what the vaccine bank is all about. I'm Rod Bain. And a look at the efforts to keep foot and mouth disease away from our nation's meat supply is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. If you live in the U.S. and have never heard of foot and mouth disease, there is probably a good reason. We haven't had the disease since 1929, and we believe that our mitigation strategies do a good job of keeping that out. Yet as the U.S. Agriculture Department's chief veterinarian, Jack Sher points out, there is still the potential of the FMD virus entering our country and perhaps causing an outbreak in livestock. We've seen with the global advent of the way the world has become and the way travel moves and the way products and animals and resources move, that viruses can move very quickly from an infected area, perhaps through a gap that's not being monitored to the United States. And the highly infectious nature of the various FMD strains not only means infected cattle, swine, sheep, and other cloven hoof animals with significant blisters, but high morbidity and mortality rates as well. And Dr. Scher says in addition, our export markets would not hesitate to close off entry for U.S. meat products in lieu of some sort of approved mitigation strategy. Until about a decade ago, the U.S. approach if foot and mouth disease entered our nation was rapid eradication, stamp out of infected animals. And Agriculture Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh says that approach would still apply in the event of small, contained, remote outbreaks. However... As the possibility of the outbreak spreading, we would go through that decision process to decide whether or not we could use vaccine to try to keep it in a regional basis or whether or not we would need to have volumes available for national. The strategy of vaccinating non-infected animals to save them with the eventual goal of harvest is designed to assure continued trade. Cher says that means FMD vaccines must be at the ready which at this time poses some challenges. There's only three companies in the world that produce vaccine, and all the vaccine that they produce currently is used up by countries that have the disease. That means the U.S. must stockpile foot and mouth disease vaccine, which is a costly proposition. In addition, due to the highly infectious nature of FMD, all vaccine research for foot and mouth disease is done on Plum Island. That animal disease center in New York State is currently operated by the Department of Homeland Security and where USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service manages an FMD vaccine bank. However, in the event of an outbreak, 
Antigen of FMD virus strains housed at Plum Island would need to be shipped overseas for conversion into a foot and mouth disease vaccine before being transported back to the U.S. This process, depending on the scope of an outbreak, could take several days, perhaps even weeks and months. Dr. Scher says this is among the reasons behind a push by stakeholders in the livestock industry to improve upon and expand an FMD vaccine bank. If we can produce this vaccine or other vaccines in the United States, it does a couple things for us. It increases our ability to rapidly respond. The other thing is competition and cost. If there's competition for that market share, then we can do more with the taxpayers' dollars as far as spreading out how we're going to spend that and what the cost of that vaccine would be. An increased push by the livestock sector for a more comprehensive foot and mouth disease vaccine bank, a greater emphasis by stakeholders like USDA for rapid response via domestic FMD vaccine production, and recent policy and technology developments that could expedite the availability and supply of vaccine in the event of an outbreak in livestock are all taking place at this moment. The questions that are being asked in those regards are if and when. The economic impacts to the U.S. livestock industry, if foot and mouth disease ever reached our country, would be devastating, with trading partners quickly closing their markets to U.S. live animals and meat products for fear this highly infectious virus would end up in their country. That is why a wide network of entities, including the Department of Agriculture, are vigilant about keeping FMD out of the U.S. USDA Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh explains the department's approach, what he equates to a three-legged stool. First and foremost, prevention is our most important role that we play through helping producers understand biosecurity, to work with states and industry, having access to laboratories that are capable of making diagnosis, so developing a national laboratory network that would have those capabilities. <laughs> And the third leg of this approach, according to the undersecretary, is a foot and mouth disease vaccination bank. Currently, such a bank is managed by USDA at the Plum Island Animal Disease Research Center in New York State. Yet present limitations such as vaccine production capabilities found only overseas, cost and response time to receive and stockpile vaccine has prompted many stakeholders in the livestock sector to call for an expanded, perhaps even new, FMD vaccination bank. Several livestock commodity groups have expressed to Congress the need for such a facility as part of a new farm bill. Explaining is Colin Woodall of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. This is one where NCBA, the National Pork Producers Council, are in lockstep on our ask. We haven't had foot and mouth disease since 1929, so a lot of people have forgotten what that looks like when you look at response. We don't know how the consumers are going to respond. We know that it would have a huge impact on our trade deals, so we have to make sure that we're prepared. And a vaccine bank is not a silver bullet, but it is one response that we need to have available. So say Congress approves an FMD vaccine bank in the new farm bill. What might it look like, and how long would it take for implementation? USDA recently took a step that could expedite the process of vaccine production and supplying a vaccine bank in the form of allowing live, non-infectious strains of FMD virus to U.S. mainland commercial facilities for vaccine research and development. The Agriculture Department's chief veterinarian, Jack Scher, says technological advances, gene editing, has made this possible. These platforms take the virus and they take away the infectivity and the disease-causing portion of that virus. And they replace it with another portion that the animal recognizes and builds an immune response to, but doesn't get the disease. Scher says even so, approval, transport, and development of approved virus strains for vaccine conversion for commercial applicants is part of a very restrictive 
administrative process. They have to work under select agent rules, under permit from the U.S. government. They have to work inspected in our USDA authorized facilities at a very restricted level, which has a lot of security. The chief veterinarian adds it will require several years of testing, inspection, and USDA approval before a commercial producer of foot and mouth disease vaccine is ready to receive virus strains for production. And there is the possibility that a vaccine bank may not even be located on Plum Island. With the ongoing construction of the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility in Kansas, USDA will operate NBAF when it comes online, believed to be in the year 2022. Yet as Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue notes, that will include partnership with the Department of Homeland Security. Obviously, the relationship with DHS has to continue to be a partner because they have the statutory authorities in light of bioterrorism to step in with unique authorities that we do not have. To assure our nation's meat supply and export commodities are safe from foot and mouth disease and other zoonotic threats. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Have you heard about biochar? We're going to be talking about a soil amendment that may save you a lot of money when it comes to fertilizer as well as improving the soil. What is biochar? How long has it been around? Let's talk with Milt McGiffin. He is a, an extension specialist down at UC Riverside who has been studying biochar for a long time. And he's addressed a lot of farmers, including recently in the Central Valley, about its benefits. And Milt, let's talk about some biochar basics. What exactly is it? Well, that's a good question. Biochar is produced by burning something that's high in carbon, usually some waste product. Only you don't exactly burn it, you, you make it into a charcoal. So when you make charcoal, if you if you burn a fire, you give it plenty of oxygen so that you get a lot of heat back and it burns quickly. When you do that, though, the fire will eventually go all the way to ash and all that carbon that's in it goes off into the air as carbon dioxide. When the trick to making charcoal is you starve it of oxygen. So when you do that, you're going to give it some heat, and you might do a little bit of burning to get the heat up, but uh, you start it of oxygen, and you get a chemical decomposition of it so that you hopefully end up with something that's pretty much pure carbon. So if you're talking about what people think of as pure biochar, you what they would give you as a description of it is basically pure carbon. So it's going to be sheets and sheets of carbon, very similar to graphite in structure. And for the untrained eye, they might think it's charcoal. Yeah, sure. It's, it is a type of charcoal. Not all charcoal is biochar, but biochar is a type of charcoal. That's so, exactly right. So basically, this is uh, slow-cooked uh, dead trees, if you will. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, they make it from, from sewage. They make it from all sorts of carbon. It's basically, you just need something that's got a lot of carbon in it. And then you need to go through uh, the process we call pyrolysis, which is what I just described, where you're heating something with no or very little oxygen in it. Biochar has been around for centuries. How did they do it way back when? Probably Mother Nature's been making biochar for a long time. We just didn't see it that way. Um, if you think about it, fire is a big part of our ecosystem out here in the West. The Midwest has very deep, black, rich soils. Some of that's because they had grassland growing there, but some of that's because the grassland burned and it went into a form of carbon that's persisted in the soil. So biochar itself has probably been around a long time. But then you invent the airplane and people start flying over the Amazon and you realize it's not this uniform sheet of green, that there's some places that are a lot darker and greener than others. And when they saw that, they then sent in some agronomists into the jungle and they started digging soil pits because, you know, that's what soil scientists do and started to look at the soil. The areas where they were dark green, you could see that 
that they're black and that the soil's just black for like six feet down or more. If you dig it in the other places where you didn't have this dark green, you got a typical tropical soil where it just is a very thin layer of topsoil and then it's, you know, very light colored on down. So something that happened in those areas of the dark green, um, the natives had done something a long time ago. And the native peoples, what they'd done was they buried, you know, they did slash and burn agriculture. So you've got a lot of, you, you slash down the trees, you put them in a big pile and you try to burn them. Well, it doesn't burn completely because they're, you know, it's wet in the Amazon to begin with and you've got these green trees. So you basically went into pyrolysis with a lot of that. You made a lot of charcoal. And then they just incorporated that back into the soil. The natives then, the Native Americans then died off because of the diseases, but they left behind that charcoal. And so those areas became overgrown with vegetation as they're wont to do in the tropics. And the vegetation flourished in those particular places. So then when this, the soil scientists went down and dug in, what they discovered was that these were man-made, obviously had a lot of charcoal in it. And it was something that the natives had done you know, maybe 500 years or more, maybe maybe even thousands of years before they had dug these pits to check it out. So whatever the natives did, uh, it persisted for a long time and it greatly increased plant productivity. And that's basically the origin story most people give for biochar. It turns out, though, that a lot of cultures have used charcoal in agriculture for a long time. There's even a, uh, it's like a, from two 200 years ago, there's even a U.S. publication, U.S. government publication on using charcoal in agriculture and all sorts of things. The, China, the Japanese have used it for a long time. It's It's been around. It's been used. We may not have understood it all that well, but we did have it. So American farmers are a little late to the party. And you, as you said, the biochar improves the soil. It doesn't break down like compost or commercial fertilizers will. So from a, the aspect of the farmer who's looking to save money, there's a money-saving benefit right there. You're going to have a very nutritious soil at less cost. Yeah, it's and it's, it should persist for years and years after that once you put it in. In the talks that you've given to farmers, what are their questions about biochar? What are their mo what are they most interested in? When we started doing this ten years ago. It was mostly just this is biochar. This is what it is. Over time, that's evolved, and within the last five five years ago, I would say their questions were more: Where can we get this, and what would it do for us, and what would it cost? And that's probably where we are now. They're more, although I think now more of them have settled onto. They've just kind of accepted what biochar is. And it's a matter of debate for them whether it fits in with their operation. A lot of them are looking to put in these units themselves. And they're, um, I think the NRCS actually will give you a, a tax break if you do that. I think they subsidize it to some degree. So um, there's, there's there are possibilities there, there for that. And so it's, it's changed over time. The farmers are curious, what's it going to cost me? What am I going to get back from it? but they seem to have a fair amount of knowledge about it at this point. What sort of soils would benefit most from an application of biochar? I would think that it would raise pH, so it would be most beneficial on a very acidic soil. Yeah, the most obvious things in acidic soil. Now, biochar has evolved over time. At one time, it was there really wasn't much post-process, so you, just, you would just make charcoal and that was it. They basically say the charcoal. Now there's a lot of post-processing with it. So you can get biochar that's neutral or pH adjusted or what have you. And so for our soils, you can get around that. But as far as soil types here that are going to improve, be improved by it, I would think a lot of ours are simply because they're low in carbon. 
that's always been a thing um, with us. And trying to raise the carbon content is difficult because most of the things we put in the soil don't persist more than a few months because it's warm and we water the soil and they, get, they just get chewed up by the microbes. We're talking to Milt McGiffin, Extension Specialist at UC Riverside, about the benefits of biochar. But there is the possibility of some drawbacks, including the translocation of harmful gases to plant roots. There's been different studies about gas evolution by biochar, but I, I don't know of anything that's quite like what you described. You must be referring to a particular study. So what study is it you must have read? Uh, the study I did take a look at before um, we started our chat was from the University of uh, Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where they did a study called Using Biochar as a Soil Amendment for Sustainable Agriculture. Okay. And they point out that in their summary that, yes, there is a lot of value to using biochar, especially as far as saving money on fertilizers and improving the soil. But there may be, and they weren't positive on this, but there may be some chemical contaminants that biochar usually contains small amounts of phytotoxic and potentially carcinogenic organic compounds, such as PAHs, which I believe are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Therefore, a full environmental risk assessment is necessary before widespread adoption for biochar as a soil amendment can be recommended, according to their report. That's the only time I've ever heard somebody say you need a full-scale risk assessment of of biochar. The truth is we're kind of heading that way with fertilizers in general anyway. You You could get certain contaminants depending on what you make biochar from and how you're making it. Generally speaking, it's not been much of a problem. Like I said, if you do get biochar from someone, it's not going to be pure carbon or what we would think of as pure biochar. Uh, by law in the state of California, if you want to sell, you want to put on your bag that this is biochar and you want to sell it to somebody that way, it's got to be at least 60% carbon. So then technically the rest of that could be ash and the ash could have a variety of different things in it. It would really kind of, de- would really mostly depend on what the feedstock was and then how you, how you made it. The ash also could be good. Um, things like potassium. You do the potash test. The reason it's called the potash test is it goes back to the old days when they got potash from wood ash. So that extra ash in there could add a lot of potassium to your soil, but it wouldn't be biochar. So you might have those problems. But beyond that, that's really out there as far as it having a, a, a toxic, you know, an effect like that. You could make it in theory from feedstocks where maybe you had a lot of painted wood or something like that. And I could see you would have a problem. But otherwise, we really haven't seen that. One source of biochar that has a lot of promise are the millions of dead trees we now have in California's mountains due to the drought. And, of course, uh, farmers are always churning up uh, old orchards to plant new orchards and vineyards. So there's a lot of potential as far as a source for the biochar, isn't there? Yeah, it's kind of a nice marriage because we don't know what we're going to do with all this excess wood. And if you drive through the Central Valley these days, you can see there's places where there's acres of old trees or whatever piled up in just big piles. And you can't, you know, burning's very restricted in the, in the valley these days. So what you're going to do with this waste wood is a good question. And then you have essentially a tinderbox up there in the Sierras because you have many dead trees from the years of drought. They're hard to get to. They can't really lumber them out. Apparently, they're not good for lumber or at least the cost to take them out is prohibitive. So the idea of turning all that into biochar is very attractive as well. And and then there's the other thing that most any of the other waste methods of 
uh, doing something with wood, you're eventually it's eventually going to end up as being carbon dioxide, and that of course contributes to global warming. So with biochar, it's a way of converting the wood into something that would actually help the soil and also sequester carbon for a long, long time and take it out of the atmosphere. Using biochar would, of course, be a sustainable practice. Is it an organic practice? Yes. There, there are, you would, everything you use, the short answer to is it organic or not is you need to talk to your certifier because that's really the person that whoever's certifying your field is one that's going to make that determination. But there are a number of biochars that are registered with OMRI and with the USDA uh, organics program. So you would want to work it out before you start using it, whether it's acceptable practice. But there are, there are ones that are perfectly fine for use in organics. And a lot of organic people I know do use it. Is there much resistance to biochar from uh, the government or the National Resources Conservation Service? There's a number of people in both of those agencies that are doing things with it. We have a very good person in the, uh, in the governor's office named Mike McGuire that does a lot of things with biochar and has been very helpful to us. Um, we've worked with uh, NRCS people on biochar. They have not given it a ringing endorsement, that would be fair to say. And they've not included it in the Healthy Soils Program. To them, they, they feel it's still a little too risky. It hasn't been proven enough. To me, it's been used for centuries it's as uniform as compost is. So to me, to me, I would just rate it pretty much the same as compost. That it, um, as far as safety of practice, that it, it's going to depend on who's making it and where you get it. But if you follow reasonable procedures, it's going to be fine. And we know that it has very good benefits for the soil. So to me, it should be included in that group. But um, it is new for us. We haven't been using it very long, maybe a decade or so. So I, I kind of get it. But they have worked with us at different times. The problem we have in getting a lot of the answers people want for it as far as production agriculture is just funding. And that's that may be the, the thing we would have with them is that they don't include that in their programs generally. We just it's hard to get funding to do field studies with it. Are you optimistic about the future of biochar in California's farms? Yes. For the simple reason that there's only so many ways you can dispose of organic waste. And when you start doing the math on how you're going to dispose of this waste, where you're going to put it, are you going to contribute to the greenhouse gas problem or are you going to decrease the greenhouse gas problem? Biochar starts looking pretty good. It may be a while, but it does look good. We are seeing people do it. We start seeing people getting the, the equipment to just do it right on their own farm. If this ever got subsidized by the government as something to use you know, maybe subsidize it under a greenhouse gas reduction program or something like that, it would really take off. The problem with it is there just isn't a lot of money. That's that's basically where you are. And that's generally true of all the waste products. You don't see a lot of research and other things in, in the compost either for that simple reason. There just isn't a base of funding to do it. But when you start doing the math on logically, what are you going to do with these waste products? Biochar stands up really well. We've been talking with Milt McGiffin. He's an extension specialist at UC Riverside. I think we'll call him Dr. Biochar. (laughs) Jeez, that's lovely. (laughs) He's optimistic about the future of biochar as a soil amendment to decrease fertilizer use as well as improve the quality of soil. And uh, it has a a bright future. There's a lot of sources uh, for information on biochar, but probably the best clearinghouse for all of them is the International Biochar Initiative. So if you just Google IBI or International Biochar Initiative, you'll eventually come to their webpage. They have a lot of white papers. They review the scientific literature every month. Uh, they have experts on there. They do webinars. Uh, if you 
join and become a member, you get access to the webinars, things like other things that other people don't. But there's a lot of free stuff there, too. So just by doing that, you'll find them. There's a number of other sources on the web, and, and I do a biochar blog, which anybody's welcome to join in on. Probably going to IBI is your best one-stop shopping place for information on biochar. Milt McGiffin, thanks for a few minutes of your time. My pleasure. Anytime. And if anybody wants to reach me about any of these things, um, you can find me on the internet. My email is very simple. It's just milt at ucr.edu, and I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.